if you could open them up to Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12. We are working our way through the book of Nehemiah. We are in week 39. It's been a really long series because we've had a lot of interruptions. And it's been a long series. So we're trying to make it through this series by the end of the summer, but... I don't know about you, and the more I keep studying this book, the more interesting it gets, the more information, the more knowledge, life-changing, transformational knowledge I learn, and uh, I'm excited about it. But I want to start today with telling you about one of my all-time favorite missionaries. And Katie, this will minister to you well, I hope, I'm sure you've heard of this, Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to uh, China, China Inland Missions. And he used to say this, and I want you to hear this because this is going to set the the tone for this message. So you got to hear this and let's let it guide us into this passage that we're going to look at. Here's what he said. When God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will not lack God's support. When God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will not lack God's support. You know, he once wrote a letter, and he said this in this letter, and I've got, I used to have this on my wall, it would just be such an encouragement to me. Here's what he wrote, we have 25 cents in all the promises of God. Now I want you to imagine you're down to a quarter, and you're serving God full time, you've got 25 cents left. And the faith of Hudson Taylor was so great that he could say, yeah, we've got a quarter, but we've got all the promises of God. And it was shortly after he said that, in in that letter, that God provided. Now listen, here's how he provided. He didn't change Chinese rice to yen. Here's how he provided. He stirred his faithful servants to give. You want to know how God provides for God's work? He stirs His people to give. Last week in Nehemiah 12, we looked at the worship service of Nehemiah 12. This is exciting. It was a celebration service. They were dedicating the wall that they had built. They had built it in 20 or 52 days. And if we would just quickly review, and you saw the seven points up on the screen, but let me just quickly review them for you. Biblical worship, we saw, is a dedication of ourselves to God. It's giving over of ourselves to God who rightfully owns us. All of what we have, all of who we are. Listen, it is God's. To dedicate is simply giving God back control and use of what He owns. He's the Master. And we learned that God likes our worship to be celebratory. I don't know how you came in here today. If you came in here struggling, likely. Remember last week, we're going to mention it again briefly, but we all go up on the wall at the valley gate. That's where those two choirs went up. That's the gate of trials, the gate of difficulty. You come in here, you've been in the world all week, you're struggling, you're defending your faith, you're trying to live for the Lord. It's very, very difficult. You come in here like I did, and maybe it's been kind of a rough week. But God wants us to celebrate. The way you come in may not be the way you go out. And we hope you go out having celebrated God's goodness to us. And then we saw thirdly, that the the biblical worship, it's participatory. We all worship. 
Men and women and children were rejoicing, verse 43, if you're looking at your text. And then fourth, we saw that God wants us to worship with purity. He really wants hearts that have been made clean. You know how you make your heart clean, Christian? If you've been bought by the blood of Christ, you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you are saved. Listen, here's how you make your heart clean. You confess, you hold out your feet like Peter did to Jesus. That means confess your sins to the Lord. When the Spirit of God reveals what is not pleasing to Him, you give it to Him and you confess. You throw it on His mercy. And we saw that there's that progression. You remember they went up on the on the wall at the valley gate, but they're in two choirs. And one choir went south, they went right to the dung gate. That's the dung gate. Lord, I had a bad week. I didn't honor you this week. I've got to throw it out. I've got to throw this on your mercy. I've got to confess my sins. They went to the fountain gate, to the water gate. The other choir, they went north to the Ephraim gate, the gate of Ephraim. That's the doubly fruitful gate. And they went all the way around the wall and both choirs ended at the same place. They ended, they ended at the house of God. See, that's the, the progression in worship. You might come in here and God says, listen, you had a bad week. You weren't walking with me this week. You've got to get your hearts clean. And while the band's playing and while we're, we're getting ready to worship God, God might be dealing with sin in your life. You're going south, but some of us, you might be coming in here and you've had a great week walking with the Lord. And you've been serving Him and fruitfulness is coming out of your life. The spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. All of this fruit might be dropping off of your branches. And the people around you are getting to enjoy eating that. And you get to go north, but we're all going to meet in the house of God. We're all going to meet in the presence of God. And that is the progression of biblical worship. But regardless of that direction... We get to rejoice. We get to rejoice. And that's the, that's the other biblical quality of worship. It's full of joy. It's the rediscovery of joy. Joy is a noun. Rejoice is a verb. Rejoicing is the rediscovery of the joy that God has already given you. And we saw the biblical worship is passionate. Listen, we ought to be the passionate people of God. Their worship was heard far away. If you're coming in here and you're subdued, well, that's okay. But we want to get you excited, not excited with frivolity in your heart, excited with joy in your heart that wants to shout out God's praises and wants to lift up God and exalt Him. That's passion. And finally, we saw the biblical worship has a public witness as their joy was heard far away we get to testify of our god when we worship but i want you to see verse 44 and you know what there's a parenthetical division after verse 43 and it throws a lot of us off so here we go you look at verse 44 and i want you to see the first three words the first three words of verse 44 go on that day in the english standard version On that day, it's the same day. So they're in this celebration service. They're dedicating this wall. This is not a new day when you get a a, a parenthesis or a, a new paragraph, rather, that starts. It seems like maybe this is the next day. This is the same day. This is still the worship service. These are still more qualities of biblical worship. And I want to bring you the eighth quality of biblical worship, and it's this. And then I'm going to unpack it. It's cheerful giving. Cheerful giving. Now I want you to look ahead. Let's look in your Bibles. We are the people of 
God's word in this church. So let's look ahead to verse 47. And I want you to see some words in verse 47. It says this, and all Israel. Now I want you to repeat something. I'm going to tell you, you're going to be a student of God's word. This was hammered into me and in undergraduate work, in my Bible classes, all means all, and that's all that all means. Let's, you say it with me, ready? All means all, and that's all that all means. Boy, you guys are terrible. That's really, that was awful. We're going to try that again. I'm speaking to myself. You ready? Here it is. All means all, and that's all that all means. All Israel. That means all of them. Every one of them. They all gathered. And what did they do? They all In the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, they all gave the daily portions. All Israel. Now what motivated the entire people of God to cheerfully and generously support the ministry of God's house? What motivated them? And what we're going to find is this. When you grow in your love for God, your giving to His ministry will increase. Here's why. When you love what, when you love God, you begin to love what He loves. And if you want to love what God loves, I'm going to tell you, He loves more than anything on earth, His church. More than anything on earth, he loves his church. What's his church? His church is the assembly of men and women and children that he has called out of the world and that he has put into his kingdom and he is working out his redemption, redemptive plan through. That's the church. But let me offer this preparation for you for our, before we begin really digging into this. Because honestly, now look at me, you know this is true, you're going to agree with me. A sermon on giving is usually not very popular. In fact, some of you, I would imagine, are thinking, wow, do I, is there a way that I can leave? Respectfully, because I want to be respectful. Some of you don't really want to be respectful, and I know that. That's all right. But how can I leave? How can I get out of this sermon? Because sermons on giving, they really aren't very popular. I have a really good friend in this church who told me about maybe 10 months ago. He said, Pastor Tim, if you, if you do a series on giving, because I had told him I want to do a series titled Giving for God's Glory. He said, if you do that series, let me know when it's done because I'll start coming back to church. Remember, I said I had a, I think I said I had a really good friend, right? Past tense. He's actually a very good friend. The topic of giving, you're going to resonate with this. It's been abused in the church. It's been abused. Now, years ago, I took our youth group to a really well-known church in New York City. We could not wait to go. It had a two-hour service. This church was in the midst of a a, a one-year-long revival. And it was sweeping out of New York City through this church around the world. And so we were in New York City, and we were serving with Bob and Emily Seymour, who are sitting over here. They're two of our missionaries with Chosen People Ministry. And we decided to attend this church We get into that church, remember the service is two hours, let me tell you, 45 minutes of those two hours was spent with the lead pastor asking everybody to give more money. 
You know, I've been getting a lot of emails lately from another well-known national ministry. And every email is this. We need you to give more money. Year-end, year-end financials are coming up in a week. We need more money. We need you to send it if you want this ministry to continue. You know what I did? I hit the unsubscribe button. Nobody wants to get the constant message, especially from a church. Give, give, give. You don't want that. Yet I really enjoy, now listen, I really enjoy being taught on how to manage God's resources for His glory. Do you realize, friends, listen, you've got to hear this. Do you realize that no one in the entire Bible talked about finances and money and wealth and possessions more than Jesus? No one. In fact, of the 29 parables that he taught, 16 of them dealt with money. That's consistent with the fact that over 800 times in all of the Bible, Old and New Testaments combined, the subject of money comes up 800 times. If you take all of the teaching of Jesus and you just extrapolated it on a timeline, you could take one-fourth of it, 25%, and, and you would be right to say he taught on the importance of managing money for the glory of God 25% of the time. That would be like you coming to church and once a month I'm giving you a sermon on managing money and not letting money manage you. That's equivalent to what Jesus did. And I would tell you that some of the greatest freedom that Denise and I have ever experienced in our married lives, it's through generous giving. And as Jim Elliott, that famous missionary, once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Amen? So what motivated, what motivated all Israel to give to God's work? My aim, here it is, you ready? Here's my goal. We're going to get in three points in this message. But I'll give you my goal. My goal is that I, as well as you, all of us, would be able to leave here today and the grip of money on our hearts would have uncurled at least one more finger. And it would have loosened up a little bit more so that we can manage our possessions for God's glory rather than our possessions managing us. What motivated all Israel to give to God's work? Here we go. Let's dig into it. Let's see what the Word of God has for us. The ministry, number one, was well organized. The ministry was well organized. Look at verse 44. Now, if you don't have your Bible with you, I'm sure something disastrous occurred in your life that prevented you from bringing it, but you need your Bibles when you come to this church because we're always going to preach right from the Word of God. Verse 44, there should be one right in front of you if you didn't bring it. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes. Now listen, there were three offices of priests. You've got the high priest, you've got the priestly class, and you've got the Levites. The Levites numbered the majority. In fact, the tribe of Levi was chosen by God to serve him full time as his priests. You know why? Because they were the only tribe that stood with Moses against those who were worshiping the golden calf. You remember Moses went up, he got the Ten Commandments, he comes down, and almost all of Israel was following after this pagan god and these 
golden calf forms, but not the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi did not participate. They stayed faithful and they stayed true to God. So God bought the Levites. He purchased the Levites. He chose the Levites. You're going to be my people, my tribe that serves me directly. The entire priesthood came from Levi. But priests, now there's Levites, there's priests, and there's high priests. Priests descended directly from Aaron, the brother of Moses. So you've got the Levites, which was the majority of all of these priests. But then you've got the priesthood. They directly descended from Aaron, who is the brother of Moses. And then you've got the high priest. You know how many Levites there were in the day of Moses? 22,000. But by Nehemiah's day, listen, there were only 284. All of the death, all of the exile, all of the people who did not return to Jerusalem from Assyria and Babylon and Persia, they had reduced their numbers down to 284. You know, the job of the Levite was to assist the priests. In fact, God says it in Numbers 18. So the Lord said to Aaron, bring your brothers also the tribe of Levi that they may join you and minister to you. While you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. So the priests ministered directly in the tabernacle or later in the temple, in the sanctuary of the temple. But the Levites were the assistants to the priests. And they had 48 cities called Levitical cities that were scattered all through the land of promise. And their job was to live in these cities when it was not their turn to serve in Jerusalem. They lived out in these cities and their job was to be the Levitical priest in those towns. So if you had a spiritual problem, then you would find your Levite. The Levite would minister to you from the Lord. See, they weren't allotted. They weren't allowed to own land. They couldn't have a secular career. They were to dedicate themselves fully to the Lord, and they were provided for through a portion of the tithes of the nation of Israel. So here we've got these 22,000 Levites in the day of Moses. We've got 284 in the day of um, Nehemiah. They're not allowed to own land. They're not allowed to have a career. They've got to fully dedicate to the Lord. They're not allowed to fully dedicate to the Lord and do a little business on the side. That's not the way it worked. So they received some of the tithes, is what Numbers said to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance. They didn't get land. So God said, your inheritance, you're going to get some of the tithe. And in return for that service, that they do their service in the tent of the meeting. So the, the Levites and the priests were supported by the people. And they were to receive a tenth of both the livestock and the harvest, Of which they were to give, the Levites then gave a tenth of all that they received to the priests. So there were fewer priests than there were Levites. So the the Levites were given a tithe and out of what they were given for their daily portions, they gave a tenth of that to the priests. Therefore, all of the people were supported. If you were a Levite, then you were often invited to a sacrificial meal. By the way, if if you took a lamb to the temple for your family's sins, you got to take most of that lamb home with you and then you would have a celebration service that your God 
was merciful to you and forgave you of your sins. So you would take that lamb and you would eat that lamb and you would celebrate together. And when you did celebrate, you would invite the Levites to come with you. So you'd choose a couple Levites and say, hey, come on over for dinner. We're going to eat the lamb that we just sacrificed and we want you to join in on the celebration with us. See, a Levite could serve until they were 50 years old, and then after that, they had to retire. And their jobs were varied. They were gatekeepers, they were porters, which means gatekeeper. They were guarding the way to God's dwelling place. They were responsible to keep the temple and its courts clean and bright. Listen, they were glorified janitors. This was the custodial crew of Israel. They were the guard of Israel. They were, they, some of them taught God's law. They were the teachers of Israel. They were gifted in teaching. Others helped the priests administer the sacrifices. And they would light the incense. They would fill the lamps with the oil. Some of them were judges in their cities. And others were trained musicians. A lot of them were trained musicians. Now look at verse 44. Because it shows us that the priests and the Levites had organized the ministry of the temple well. It was well organized. It said to gather them in to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. You see, they made sure that the monies and the produce and, and all the meat was brought to the temple and it was managed well. You see, the first point, why did they support the ministry? Because the ministry was well organized. It was well managed. Look at verse 44. We hunger. The staff hungers. We yearn to hear this. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. You know what a pastor wants? A pastor wants his people to rejoice over his ministry. That's what, that's what a pastor wants. That's what they did. All of Judah, God's southern kingdom, all of Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. They were ministering well. They rejoiced over them. Look at the Levites we've got. Look at the priests we've got. Man, God has really raised up really excellent leaders. It is a joy to serve them. And it's a joy to be served by them. See, God is not pleased... With a church that manages the gifts poorly. The ministry was being administered with competence, with integrity, and it led to the second reason that all of Israel supported the work of God's house. The second one is this the ministers, they led well. Not only was the ministry well organized, the ministers were leading. Well, look at what it says, verse 45. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers, these are Levites, and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. We should rejoice when the leadership of a church leads in a Bible-centered way. Amen? You know, I wasn't always a pastor. My first career was professional counseling. In fact, I never saw myself as being a pastor until age 25. My early plan, my career plan, was I wanted to be a 
a, I wanted to head up a counseling ministry that would minister to churches. Churches could send their people to me and my staff. That was a parachurch counseling ministry. That was my career goal. Then God called us into ministry. But I sat in the pews for most of my life until 2006, just like you do. And when I was in Virginia and when I was in Marietta, Georgia, and when I grew up in Syracuse, New York, you could tell when... The pastors and the board led well. You could tell. You could tell when they didn't. And some of us, we've been at churches, some of you have been at churches that they're not centered on God's Word. They're not preaching God's Word. Listen, I'm going to tell you, if you go to a church that's not preaching God's Word, I'm going to tell you what's happening in your soul. It's starting to dry up. There's starting to be a famine in there. And after a while, you won't even know that your soul is starving unless you can discern the signs, the signs like emptiness and irritability and dissatisfaction and joylessness and depression. The list goes on. Those are signs of a soul that is drying up. And it's not until you wander your way back into a relevant Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting church, and all of a sudden your, your heart is like a sponge, and you can't take in fast enough what the preacher is preaching, because it's the Word of God. See, the ministry team in Nehemiah's day, look what it says, they performed the service of their God according to the command of David and his son Solomon. David lived over 500 years before Nehemiah. Can I ask you a question? Do you know even one sermon? One sermon that was preached in the 1500s? See, we're modern people. We're disconnected from history. This was a solidarity. They were a covenantal people. What David preached, they knew. And what Solomon taught, they still maintained. Because they studied and they loved and they lived the Word of God. If you're a student of the Word of God, let me tell you, what was being preached in 1500s that was Word-centered and Christ-exalting is the same stuff preached today. And this was a Bible-centered ministry, and it thrilled the souls of the people so that they rejoiced over their spiritual leaders. You know, I wonder if the writer of Hebrews was thinking of this passage when he wrote, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Do you know that your leaders, your elders, your deacons, your pastors, your staff, do you know that we're going to have to give an, an account for your soul? Do you understand the ramifications of that? That I'm going to stand before Jesus and I'm going to have to give an account for you? This is why I take 30 or so hours to prepare these sermons so that they are transformational, that they are hopefully relevant, that they can move your heart to change. This is why we visit, this is why we counsel, this is why we love. We're keeping watch over you. We're going to be held accountable for this. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Ministry should be a joy, and leaders should minister well. 
They performed the service of their God in the service of purification according to God's work. They were singularly focused on doing God's work, God's way, performing the service of God in a pure way. Listen, God doesn't, God doesn't work through dirty vessels. God doesn't work through dirty vessels. And in the New Testament, the way that God's blood-bought people made themselves clean was by confessing that sin that He has so graciously revealed through His Spirit. And so we hold each other... You know, you want to know what it looks like on a joint board meeting? We meet first, the third Monday of every month. The deacons meet, the elders meet separately. The, fir- the fourth Monday of every month, we all meet together. They're called joint board meetings. You know what we do? The entire first hour, we're studying God's Word, all of us. The last 15 minutes of that first hour, we get out into our prayer partners. Every board member has a prayer partner. And those prayer partners, we meet during the week. And we pray and we hold each other accountable. And we minister to one another. This is how you lead a church well. You hold each other accountable on your leadership team. You ask the hard questions that are even difficult to answer. Because God's leaders should lead well. And when they do, it creates, listen, it creates a circular dynamic. The church will rejoice. And when the church rejoices, it will increase the desire of our leaders to lead even better. That's That's the dynamic that it creates. So the ministry was well organized. Ready? Here we go. We don't always do things very well. That's not an insight to some of you. We sometimes drop the ball. And sometimes we don't organize very well. And sometimes we don't communicate very well. And we're constantly holding each other accountable and saying, how can we do this better? Here's what we do as staff. We meet every Monday for about two hours, and then we meet as pastors after that. We try to get better at what we're doing so that we can lead you well and serve you through a well-managed ministry. That's a, it's a well-managed ministry, and when ministers are leading well, that causes the people to rejoice. But there's a third part to this, and it clearly involves all of us. The members all understood their responsibility. Now here's the fun part. You ready? Here's the part where some of you are going to want to tune out your ears. So let me just invite you to listen. And let's see what the Lord's going to speak to you about. Did you know that today, those who are 55 years and older provide most of the finances for any church? Did you know that? There's a trend for younger people. They don't give. They don't support the ministry. Furthermore, the average Christian in America, you want to know how much the average Christian in America gives of their income to their church? 2.6%. Only 4% of all American Christians give at least 10% to the church. Now, some of you weren't here two weeks ago when I gave a lot of background on tithes and offerings and free will offerings. You're going to miss. I'm going to encourage you to go back on the website and listen to that. It would fill in some of the gaps, and I don't have time to refill. But I want you to imagine the level of ministry. Just imagine with me, Christians, the level of ministry that could be done if all of God's people saw it as their responsibility to support the work of God. 
Look at verse 47. Here we are again. In all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. What were the singers and the gatekeepers even doing? Well, you've got the singers. They were supported fully because, listen, are you like me? Your faith can struggle. I mean, can't you have really rotten weeks? And you just wonder, God, where are you? How can you continue to love me? See, the responsibility of the singers were to take flagging faith, discouraged hearts, and reignite them towards God, reinflate them with faith. Singing has the power to do that. Singing was a fully supported position in the days of Nehemiah. You begin to sing, and all of a sudden the songs bring Hope back into your heart brings a joy back into your life. It brings a future back into your soul. That's the power of song. And they've got gatekeepers, and gatekeepers protected not only the city, but listen, they had gatekeepers for the house of God, the temple. And their job, as I said, was to keep it bright and clean. You know, you've got gatekeepers in this church. They're called elders and pastors. And they make sure all who come into membership have a clear testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. And they've got a good reputation with people outside the church. We've had people come into membership and they can give a testimony of faith, but their reputation we know is bad. And we've said, let's hold off on membership. We'll bring you back in. We'll get you through this, but let's come alongside you and let's restore your reputation because it brings that reputation into our church. And I'm continually amazed with many of our board members at the sacrifice they make to serve the church, the love that they have to serve with excellence. There's been a lot of elders, a lot of deacons, no matter what pressures they face at work, they're going to maintain their commitments to God's work. I find that amazing. It's refreshing. And you might be thinking, well, I don't even know who the board members are for this church. You know where you can find out where they are, who they are? Get on our website, get to the I'm New tab, and you'll see a picture of all of our board members, but one, he's an FBI agent, not allowed to put his, his face on there. You'll see all of the pictures, and most of them, all of them will be soon, but most of them have a little bio who they are, and they've all got an email. You know why I want you to know that they've all got an email? Because I'd like to encourage you to get on there, know your leaders, email them, thank them for what they do. They don't get paid for any of this. Singers, gatekeepers, Levites, priests, they were vital ministries in the house of God and made possible because all Israel gave. They all saw it as their responsibility. You know, I'm often asked, what percent of giving is responsible giving to the church? What percent of giving is responsible giving to the church? That's always a fun question. You never know why that's being asked. I get asked that a lot. Here's, here's partly how I answer that. You know, Israel had three tithes. Two regular, one every three years. They totaled annually, not 10%, 23%. 23%. 
And above that, above the 23% were what were what was called free will offerings, which were voluntary and generous contributions. And you might be thinking, well, we don't live in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. We live under grace. We don't live under law. But the standard, listen, the standard of the law never reduces in grace. I'll give you an example. In the Old Testament, murder was the unlawful taking of someone's life. That's the Old Testament. Jesus made it pretty clear in the New Testament. Murder is even deeper. It's getting murderously angry with somebody in your heart. That's the same thing before God is murder. You see, from the old to the new, from the law to grace, the standards of God's God go up. They don't go down. It's not in the New Testament that 23% of all that we have belongs to God. That's Old Testament attitude. The New Testament attitude is this. 100% of everything we have belongs to God. And we are to use it to support what He loves. We're to use it in a way that brings Him glory. Now listen, I'm going to tell you really, really clearly. I'm not the kind of pastor that preaches on money. Some of you have never heard me, but two weeks ago, preach a sermon on money. I want to, I want to because it needs to free so many of us. Some of us need to be freed from the grip of money. It's managing you. You're in debt. You're in debt so deep you don't know how you're going to get out. You've got covetousness. You've got desires in your heart that are running amok and you can't wait to get the next thing and you get it and it fills your heart. Then it it drives right out the bottom of your heart and you need to get something else. That's a love of money. That's a love for this world. I do want to preach on that. But there's nothing more on earth that God loves in the church. So I would answer the question of what percentage we ought to give to the church this way. Here it is. You ready? You're all wanting to hear this. Here's the answer. Give generously. Give cheerfully. Give regularly. Give responsibly. And let your service follow Your money. That's the answer. Each one, Paul said, must give as he has decided in his heart. It's not my job to tell you what you ought to give. It's God's job. And for some of you, listen, you better be ready. For some of you, God's going to say, hey, you're not giving enough. It's my stuff. I've been giving it to you to steward it, to manage it. I want you to give more because there's a need. He's going to ask you to give 40% of all you have. Are you ready to obey? Some of you are in the 2.6% category. And he's going to say, listen, that's not pleasing to me. 10%, it's the training wheels for giving. It keeps your giving from wobbling. At least least do 10%. That's always been the minimal standard. But I want you to get to 10, not when you get out of debt, not when you figure out how to manage your money. I want you to go to 10% next week and trust me to provide. Listen, I don't know what God's going to tell you. I know this. Give generously, cheerfully, regularly, and responsibly. Let your service follow your money. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, if I were sitting where you are, there might be the whispery temptation of a thought that's going through my mind like this. Pastor Tim must want a bigger paycheck. That's why he's preaching this. By the way, I want you to note two things. One, I didn't go out of my way to get to chapter 12. This is where we are in the series. 
But I want to tell you something that I, that I normally would never share with you. But I think in the context of this sermon, it's appropriate. But I want to make sure you hear it the right way. For several years now, knowing that God, listen, knowing that God was radically enlarging the scope of this ministry through Cornerstone. We are a multi-siting church. We meet Saturday nights, Sunday mornings here, Sunday mornings, two services at the other location. We've got Riverside going on. We've got two church buildings. We've got an imminent counseling center next door of this building ready to start up life skills training center we've got so many things going on the work in the works god has radically enlarged the scope of this ministry and knowing that i've asked the board the last four years don't give me a raise now i normally would never have told you that but i want you to hear that in the context of this sermon because I know God's going to provide for my family's needs, and we just simply live within our means. We are a means-within-living family. And usually the board hasn't listened, but this last year, the entire staff got together and talked and came to the board and insisted that we all forego raises in our salaries. You see, we didn't meet the budget last year. And we're not able, we weren't able to give any of our missionaries an increase, so all the staff asked to be treated the same. And the board thankfully consented. Now listen, I don't say that to bring honor to me, to bring honor to any of us. I want to persuade you that my preaching on biblical generosity, it's not to bring more money into staff wallets. Listen, it's to increase our ability to serve God and do what He has asked us to do. And friends, we can and we should cheerfully respond and give responsibly. And I'm going to end this in five minutes by telling you, giving you seven principles of cheerful giving from 1 Corinthians 16. You're going to see the passage behind me. Let me give you seven super brief principles. Giving to God's work is for every Christian. Not a select few. Not 55 and older. It's to be given to every Christian. I know a mother, I heard a mother one time with her daughter in church, gave her daughter a dollar bill and a quarter. And said to her, honey, I want you to learn to give. And when that kind man passes that plate, you choose which one you want to put in. That plate's coming, and you can imagine the war that's going on in that little girl's mind. And finally, she put in the quarter, and the plate went on, and on the way home, her mom said, Honey, why did you choose to give the quarter and not the dollar? She said, Because the pastor said, You've got to give cheerfully, and I knew I couldn't cheerfully give the dollar, so I wanted to give the quarter. As far as I know, I think that's true. So we had in, in Lynchburg, Virginia, where I went to church, my wife and I, we had, a, we had one deacon. This is Thomas Road Baptist Church, a 6,000 people church. We had one deacon, and they were always preaching, give more money, give more money. The deacon would pass the plate, it was a basket, he would pass the basket, and if he didn't think you gave enough, he'd pass it again. And sometimes I'd be thinking... Is that gnarly old man an angel? Did he know that I'm not giving the way that I should? Is that what's happening here? 
Listen, giving to God's work is for every Christian. Paul says, as I directed the churches, not some of them, not most of them. All the churches received the same direction. Number two, giving to God's work is to be a regular priority. He said, on the first day of every week. You know what some of us do is a mistake? We count up all of our bills, all of our wish lists, all of our expenses, and all of the money we got coming in, and then we make a decision on what we're going to give to the Lord. That's not the biblical guideline. It's on the first day of the week before your expenses hit. You decide this before your week goes. You do it on the first day of the week. You make a decision not guilted by your pastor, not under compulsion, feeling like you've got to give or God doesn't love you. God loves you because of Christ, not what you give in your wallet. But you do it the first day of the week, having thought through it. And then the third principle, giving to God's work, is to be a personal action. Look what he says, each one of you. Each one of us. What you give is between you and the Lord. What I give is between Denise and I and the Lord. It is a planned and thought through commitment. He says it's to put aside and save. You plan through it. You think through your commitment. It's to be proportionate to God's generosity. Look what he says. As he may prosper. If God increases your income, you increase your giving. If he continues to increase, you continue to increase your giving. There was a pastor a few years ago. I had a man come up and say, Pastor, I'm making $4,000 a year, and I'm going to start giving 10% of that. Remember, I'm telling you that the tithe is not a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament one. But Randy Alcorn says it's the training wheels on giving. Keeps it from wobbling side to side. He says, I've got $4,000 I'm making this year, and I'm going to give... 10% of that. The next year, he got a job that radically increased that. He came to the pastor and he said, Pastor, the Lord's given me a lot more money. Can I have permission from you to get out of my commitment? I told you. I'm going to give, but I can't keep pace with what what, what God has given me. The pastor looked at him and said, Then I'm going to pray that the Lord takes you back down to 4,000. And the man said, You know what? You're right. I will give as the Lord has given to me. And it's to be freely given with no regrets so that no collections, Paul said, be made when I, when I come. He doesn't want guilting to guilt anybody to giving. Listen, giving has to be God's work in your heart and your response to him. It needs to be cheerful. It needs to be uh, joyful, regular, but it's between you and God. And finally, it is to be given without delay, he said, when I arrive. The Bible is great. It provides the way that we can give. And the, way, the, reason, the reason I'm preaching on this is not because I came up with a new text. It flowed out of our series. But the reason I'm preaching it so excitedly is not that you would give more money and I'd get a bigger paycheck. It's likely not going to happen. I can guarantee you nobody on staff here will ever get rich. But here's why. It's not to give more money to our wallets. It's to give more money to the work of God so we can do greater things for Him. It's for the glory of God. And all Israel gave to God's house. Why? Here they are. Because the ministry was well organized and well managed. Because the ministers led well and because the members of all God's people understood their responsibility.
Let's go ahead and pause and pray. But even before we pray, let me ask you to think